Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Introducing Royal Caribbean's newest ship, Icon of the Seas, the ultimate family vacation. The ultimate six slides, eight neighborhoods, zero compromise vacation. The ultimate never done that, can't wait to do it vacation. The ultimate chillin' by a different pool every day of the week vacation. This is the icon of vacations. Icon of the seas. Arriving in 2024. Book today. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry Bahamas. How do you feel great on vacation? Like really good? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sand beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll immerse yourself in natural wonder and find your center on an island where things move at your speed. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba Effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Hi, everybody. This is the Cricket Badger podcast. Each badger marks the track with its own scent. His black legs are short but very powerful for digging. The name badger probably comes from the French word bêche, meaning digger. Must be a year of action for race and inclusion in sport. It's brought to you in association with British Future and the Asian media. Uncle Desai sends his apologies for not being able to chair today's live event. My name is Barney Chowdhury and I'm an editor at large for Eastern Eye. Uh, I'm honoured, humbled and delighted to be with you for the next 75 minutes. I know that we've got some stellar organisations in our audience, so may I thank you in advance uh, for joining us and I look forward to asking some of your questions later. So before I start to chair this panel discussion, let me explain that racism in cricket and more widely in sport is something I've been reporting on for the past 40 plus years, uh, formerly for the BBC and now for my newspaper. Of course, a lot's happened over the past few months. Uh, the stunningly honest and heartbreaking story of Azim Rafiq is now well known. We know that since he blew the whistle on racism, much has been written and discussed. In fact, it's a story that's not going away, is it? Even today, we had an apology from Yorkshire's interim coach, Ryan Sidebottom, for saying that the club should try and forget the Azim Rafiq scandal. <laughs> I'd love to have been a fly on the wall at his meeting with Lord Patella Bradford, who's overseeing much-needed change at the club. So to help me unpick and make sense of where we are, and just as important, where we should be heading in sport and cricket, I have a great panel of experts. Sundar Katwala is the director of British Future, an independent and non-partisan think tank which works on identity and immigration, integration and race relations with a focus on engaging the public constructively in issues which can be polarising and divisive. Halima Khan is the founder and director of Opening Borders, a not-for-profit organisation which harnesses the power of sport and channels it into community cohesion, gender equality and 
all round better health for communities. James Butler is an experienced radio broadcaster and a sports journalist who runs and presents the Cricket Badger podcast, the biggest independent cricket podcast panel. Welcome and thank you for joining us. So, James, let me start off with you first. Um, you actually broke the Azim Rafiq story in great detail uh, in, in August 2020. Uh, could you just talk us through exactly what happened? Um, I knew Azim. I, I mean, I come from this from three distinct kind of viewpoints, really. I was a, a fan of Yorkshire County Cricket Club. I then worked for Yorkshire County Cricket Club as the media manager. Um, I knew Azim during that period. Uh, and then ever since, I've covered it as a broadcaster and journalist. And um, I interviewed Azim on my podcast in August 2020. He'd done a, an interview with Wisden um, a week or two before that. But we got a bit further into the racism stuff. I'd had Michael Carberry on my podcast about two months prior to that, where that had gone a bit viral when he'd said racism is rife in cricket. Um, and then off the back of that, um, I started to take a bit more interest, to be honest. Um, to my shame, it's not something that had ever really kind of crossed my path before. Um, but when Azim came on and talked on my podcast, then we talked off record and we spoke pretty much every day since August 2020. Obviously, it opened my eyes quite widely and I tried to support him and get the story out there. Um, so you, you were involved with the club since 20, for a long time, since 2007, I think. I worked for the club for six years. Yeah, so when you were there, you, you didn't see any of the vibes that, that, that have now come out? I, I think it's um, with institutional racism and with, obviously, from Azim's um, allegations, they were very specific to him. I'm not saying I never saw anything that made me feel uncomfortable when I was at the club, because I did. But I didn't. it's not something where you walk around the corridors of power at Headingley and everybody's using the P word every five seconds. That isn't how it, that isn't how it was at all. Yeah, um, never does. So obviously, from Azim's personal point of view, it was something that hit him very hard and hit him. I mean, having having spoken to him over the last um, eighteen months, two years, whatever it's been now, um, I know how low he's felt at various stages in the process, and it's really affected his life. I mean, well documented that he, he considered suicide um, while still a player. Um, he reported his allegations in twenty seventeen and twenty eighteen. The club just turned a blind eye and didn't do anything about it. And I think um, I've, I've heard a lot of people say he's only after the money. He's after trying, trying to kind of get some kind of reputational um, gain from this. I can say after speaking to him all the way through this process, never mentioned money once. Um, it was all about just having the respect from the club that they, you know, that they listened to him and acted appropriately if the need arose. Thanks, James. Halima, you too have links with the club. Would you explain what they are? Yeah, thank you, Barney. So I've done quite a lot of stuff with the club over the last five or ten years, uh, mainly on a voluntary basis, so quite a bit of coaching with them. There was a stint around 2015, if I remember um, rightly, that I was managing the Yorkshire under-15s team. And I've done quite, um, as you mentioned, with my organisation, Opening Boundaries. We've held quite a few events linked in with Yorkshire County Cricket Club around raising awareness of women, South Asian communities um, and issues around gender inequality in sport. Uh, and what, when you were there inside Headingley and, and working with the, with the club, 
with the women's cricketers. What, what were your experiences? Uh, well, I was, I was going to say, Barney, at under 15, you definitely don't get the privileges of uh, coaching inside at Headingley or even stepping onto the uh, to the turf to play a game. So Perhaps we should change our, our game. The, the under 15, maybe that is something that should be changed. The under 15, if they're going to be called under 15 Yorkshire women's cricket, they should be able to play at the ground. Um, but, you know, the environment, if I'm honest with you, you could tell that there were quite a lot of clicks parents kind of knew the coaches coaches knew the parents and it was almost this system where it you know talent at time didn't matter but if you had the right parent you were going to go up the kind of player pathway but it's not to say that there were people in there trying to get through the through the kind of talent and the player pathways I think it was it was sometimes from my opinion seen as a bit of a closed shop so you would always see the same people coming through the system coming through the talent pathways and there was no really room for others to come into that or it would be quite difficult for them to come into that environment. I've heard that quite a lot from people I've spoken to. One of the things they say is that, of course, cricket is expensive uh, and you've got to buy the gear and uh, coaches speak to one another. So you can almost be blackballed. Did you ever come across that in, in your yeah, and it's, it is an expensive sport. Um, and the challenge that you have is, one, you can turn up with equipment. But actually, when you've got, um, you know, some of the county girls that are there from affluent backgrounds, you know, the parents have got that disposable income to pay £200 for a bat, to pay £90 for, you know, pads and so on. You don't have that income. So you're turning up with the bare minimum. There's also a complexion issue that you then start to have. So if you do get players coming in from kind of Asian and ethnic backgrounds, when they're looking at their counterparts, they don't feel like they belong in that environment because guess what? My back cost me about 20 quid because it's all I can really afford. And, you know, people are there with their... And, and that's not to say that, you know, they've got that income. They can spend that on how they want. But it is that environment and that can start to feel quite uncomfortable. And I can understand why if you're a young Asian girl or even if you're a young black girl, you sometimes come into the environment thinking I'm going to play for my county I want to then go and play for my country but you slowly start to detach because you don't feel like you belong in that environment and you can't keep up with the with the pace of the other girls not just from a player's perspective or an athletic side but also from a kind of I haven't got the best kit every season or my kit isn't brand new every time I start the season. Thank you Halima. Uh, Sundar let, let's let's turn to you uh, and let's broaden it a little bit because I read your um, um, your interview with Press Association about the fact that social media has a lot and, and that you've been a victim of racism in, in, in football. Just just tell us a bit about your experiences in sport uh, and, and what's been happening in terms of in terms of uh, racism. Well I think I think sport is so important, I think, to identity, race, social connection in our country. You know, it's a sport mad country for lots of people, not not everybody, but it's also really formative. So you know I had you know, to the extent that I had views about identities, you know, what was open or close to me in terms of being, you know, Indian or English or British or Everton Football Club or Yorkshire Cricket Club, you know, you you have an experience, you have a formative experience of that as a seven-year-old, eight-year-old, 11-year-old, before you start to have views about those ideas about identity when you're 15, 16, 18. So, you know, my, my first experience of sport was just being absolutely football mad as a seven-year-old and on a sort of three or four-year-long campaign to be allowed to be taken to a match because my friend Andrew could be taken for a match. So it's quite a naive, I think, seven-year-old who in sort of Merseyside in the in the early mid-80s here. But I eventually got to go to the matches, you know, went to a lot of football matches. But by the time I was a teenager, the kind of overt racism you could hear and see because Liverpool had signed John Barnes and Everton had no black players 
was absolutely astonishing. So I'm slightly in the position of maybe, you know, wanting, have I picked the wrong team here? My fellow supporters are singing Everton or White at the opposing team because they've got this England star. And that, that was my route into social you know, issues, campaigning, identity, the kind of work I do arose out of my teenage experience of Norman Tebbit saying, you know, why didn't your dad support England? And that experience at Everton Football Club. Um, I feel, you know, I feel I'm in my 40s. I've seen change in our society for the better across the generations quite powerfully, but I've also lost that change in the last three years personally because I'm back to getting more racism in my life every day than I have at any other point for the last 30 years because I talk about race in public. I'm one click away from, you know, any bigot in the country. If I want to say England brings us all together, that's really happening, then, you know, 90% of people agree with that now. The people who don't, they can they can harass me. And if Twitter and the police don't do anything about that, and sadly they don't, then then I'm, you know, I'm in a worse position than I was when I was 11, you know, because we dealt in the football stadium with that racism. By, by sort of 1994, you couldn't do it anymore. You got policed, you got chucked out, kick it out of being founded. And the culture shifted slowly, I think, over the generations. By Euro 96, it felt welcoming. It wasn't very diverse, but it felt less aggressive and less threatening. So different sports have been going on these different journeys. But I think I think sport drives the conversation because it's something we're interested in, something that brings us together potentially when it works or or something where, you know, the pain of, you know, segregation, separation, being put in your own box is very evident from a very young age. If there's one thing about sport, it's very tribal, isn't it? You know, if you think about it for a second, it's you support Everton, I support Coventry, you know, and we meet on the football field sometimes and and, and and that's tribal from the moment we start. And then you've got the added complication of the fact that we're, we're people of colour uh, and, and that produces uh, even more uh, angst among the fans. But, you know, Barney, I think tribes are part of the answer here, potentially. And I think, you know, I think we used to think, you know, when I was 15, 16, you know, that sport just was something that brought out the worst in people. So football is about hooliganism, football is about racism, football is about nationalism. But if you want to have the tribe of we are Bradford, we are Leeds, we are Yorkshire, we are Everton, we are Liverpool, we are England, and everybody's invited, then it's actually a really powerful thing to aspire to and get. And I think what, you know, that Everton is much more like that as an idea, you know, now than it was then, but there were always people working for that to be the case, you know, so in places like, you know, Leeds United or Bradford, there's been that argument over decades. So I think, you know, Yorkshire County Cricket Club was the institution that cricket missed an opportunity for half a century in this country because, you know, it wants to be the national sport. It's been slipping away and you had Commonwealth communities who came in thinking it was the number one sport. And I think cricket lost the black community, it never lost the Asian communities, but it somehow, somehow it's a story of separateness across Yorkshire. So Yorkshire County Cricket Club is the institution we most want to get it right in a way. And that's why it's such a tragedy that there's so much work still to do. Alima, you're actually uh, in Yorkshire. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I just wonder from your viewpoint, what you see happening as a result of the fallout of Azim Rafiq's uh, whistleblowing, uh, how it's affecting communities, how it's affecting sport, how it's what what what's the feeling on the ground? 
Um, sure, Bonnie. I just wanted to um, comment, Sundar, on your point there about the kind of tribes and, you know, the divides there. From my perspective, especially at a grassroots level, I always saw the opposite. Sport was the only place that I would come and I would see so much diversity. So when I would come and play and coach in the teams, I would see, you know, a kind of demographic of different people. I wouldn't see that if I just went out in my community or I, you know, because of the environment that I was brought in and living in Bradford, very predominantly South Asian communities. It was only the only time when I started playing cricket that I would see, you know, women of different diverse backgrounds, both physically um, and unseen diversity as well. You know, when I'm talking to them, they've just got so many different backgrounds. I think the divide, and again, it's my opinion, starts to happen when you move up that ladder, when you move away from the participation, you move away from the grassroots, and then you're trying to get into the, I suppose, as you mentioned there, that that system of club environment. And that's when you start to see maybe less and less of it. In answer to your question, Barney, I think with regards to what has this done in communities and people, I think it's lost a lot of trust. Yorkshire and, and even the England Cricket Board, you know, only a few years ago developed the South Asian strategy and there was so much resource that was put behind it. And I've seen myself some of the efforts and interventions that Yorkshire have put in place to try and engage with South Asian communities. Really sad in one sense that I feel like all of that has gone. Nobody remembers that anymore because of what's happened now with the Azim Rafiq case and lots more people are coming forward and talking about their experiences. So whilst it's really sad on that side is to, to, to see that and think all of these years of work in the South Asian strategy hasn't, you know, really maybe hit the mark where they wanted to. At the same time, it's also a strong, you know, Azim Rafiq has been really strong in coming forward and it needed to be done. So it's such a mix of emotion where you go from it was really strong and brave and that needed to be done to then equally at the same time saying, but it's really sad as well for this sport that we've come to this and, you know, personally on a personal level, you know, I love cricket, watch it, play it, coached it. And I've worked with so many young people and, and you know, adults in, in club environments trying to engage through sport, but use it as a, a wider social tool as well around cohesion, community, bringing people together. And this very much is doing the opposite of that. So we have to take the opportunity that's come out of all of this and try to change the face of, of cricket and, you know, sport maybe in, in general around inclusion. One of the things that Azim said was that he wouldn't let his son or daughter play cricket. Yeah. Um, and, and I just wondered whether that was still the purveying mood in, in, in Yorkshire. I, I mean, I've had parents say that to me uh, over the last few months. Parents who have got young girls and young boys who are playing club cricket or even just participatory sports saying this is the reason why we don't want them to engage in sport. This is the reason why we'd rather they're focused on what they see as a an academic education and gain a good qualification so that they can get jobs and they can make something of themselves. What it is is that they now don't have trust in the institution. There was very little trust in thinking that you could make a career out of sport anyway, being from a South Asian background. So that's half the battle sometimes. But actually now I feel like there's even little trust to say that, well, even if you do make it into sport, I've seen how you get treated and I don't want my son or my daughter to go through that. James, um, one of the things that you mentioned was that you speak to Azim on a regular basis. So what is he making of uh, what's going on right now and what Yorkshire are trying to do and perhaps the other clubs as well in, in county cricket that we've heard about? I think with Azim, it's worth just kind of going back a step and thinking about how Yorkshire dealt with his situation. Because to me, there were two very distinct parts of Azim's 
allegations or or the overall picture. There was initially his allegations of racism and institutional racism at the club. And then the secondary, there was the scant disregard of the club to what he'd actually said and the fact they completely ignored what he'd said. And I think it was actually that that actually bit Yorkshire on the backside rather than the actual racism itself, which is quite sad. It was the fact that they mismanaged the, the situation. Um, they kind of adopted a bunker mentality where they hoped it would go away. And I, I, I think in, in in society in general, but certainly in cricket, there's probably three things that actually make people take racism seriously. I think there's the the potential bad PR. If it's going to affect individuals and their reputations, then they do something. I think there's financial loss. If it's going to affect a company economically, they do something. As we've seen all three of these in the uh, Azim Rafiq case, the political intervention, and if it gets bigger than the the organisation itself, and all all three of those, fortunately or unfortunately, you know, affected Yorkshire County Cricket Club. I, I say unfortunately because I think as a fan, I'm very sad with where Yorkshire are at the moment, and I think yeah, we myself and Azim have had this conversation regularly with both Yorkshire fans. Yeah, he played for the club. He's very proud to have a Yorkshire cap. He's he represented that organisation with pride and and with passion. And you know, one one thing I always, always makes me confuses me to a degree is how the people in charge at Yorkshire didn't they didn't know Azim because if you actually watch Azim play and if you'd spoken to Azim, you know that he's a an obstinate so and so. He you know the way he played, he was a fighter, he was a scrapper, and he was never going to let this go. Um, and the club were very naive, I think, in that they thought that this would just blow over and and disappear. And that was their undoing. And you know, just kind of to repeat, I think the actual allegations of racism, if they'd actually, well, first of all, if they dealt with it initially, if they'd actually taken his allegations seriously, taken appropriate action, listened to him, it would never have got this far. It certainly wouldn't have got as far as the DCMS hearing. But the, the fact that they didn't do is actually more of their undoing than the actual racism itself, which is the wrong way around, isn't it? You know, you, you should be in the dock for racism, not for how you mismanage the allegations of racism. Both are bad, um, don't get me wrong. But I, th- I think it's also worth, Barney, just making the point that this isn't just a Yorkshire problem. You know, York- yeah. Yorkshire are very much in the headlines at the moment because of the way they mismanaged Azim's allegations. But this, the, there are whistleblowing hotlines around the country. There are people coming forward from all of the 18 counties um, giving their experiences of, of racism in the past and I think Yorkshire have been unlucky in a way that they've had somebody as obstinate as Azim who dug his heels in and wouldn't let this go because I think the thing I've, I've noticed more than anything talking to Azim all the way through this was how it affected him personally how somebody that comes forward and is is brave enough and confident enough or desperate enough to actually make the allegations in the first place isn't seen as being the solution. He's seen as being the problem. And I've spoken to a lot of people during the last 18 months since I interviewed Azim who have said that, you know, I, I have got issues, but I don't come forward because it might actually affect my future employment opportunities. It might affect my ability to go into coaching. I might lose that contract or I might, you know, I'll be seen as an issue. And I think a lot of people want to blend into the background and just have a, an easy life or a more comfortable life. And actually doing what Azim's done putting your head on the block and getting yourself out there. We've seen how people, you know, there was, during the DCMS thing, there was an outpouring of sympathy and emotion for Azim. How can this have been allowed to happen to one individual? 
Azim's never painted himself as being an angel. None of us are angels. None of us are perfect. And Azim's done things wrong in the past. And obviously, the backlash that came off the back of the DCMS hearing, you know, digging up quotes from the past and trying to discredit Azim in a way was almost Cricket's way of squashing him. And that, that was something I saw quite a lot during the time speaking to him between the podcast and the DCMS, was there was a lot of attempts to try and discredit Azim and make him feel, you know, it's, it, Azim's the person at fault here. It's not the club at fault. And I think that is something which Cricket, you know, if Cricket's um, ever in denial about racism, it's that part of the process. Even if it is just somebody's perception that I might be damaged if I actually speak the truth. There is that perception that that is the landscape and that is wrong and cricket needs to do something about that. Sunday, you want to come in? Yeah, I think I think it's really interesting. It's necessary to have this reckoning. It's difficult. It's difficult for the people involved when people say, why did you put up with it? It's, it's difficult to take on. But it's really difficult and uncomfortable to have the reckoning. I think you've got to recognise that. So there's a real... You know, the reason they think it can go away is it has always gone away before. There's a great deal of offence at what, you know, Imran Khan said about Yorkshire and Asians and Pakistani community, you know, back in the 1999 World Cup and everyone said this isn't true at all. We haven't had any Asian players yet, but it will happen. So there's a feeling of progress, but it had gone away before and it didn't go away this time. And I think every sporting institution and a lot of other institutions be looking at why things are going to stay up now and that there were different interventions you know it was partly because of the anti-racism protests we had I think that changed the level of atmosphere you know made Azim Rafiq himself go back into it that totally changed how some of the politicians especially the sponsors responded and suddenly you've got you know Tetley beer and have a good spring water you know pulling out because of um, because of racism, suddenly the ECB is saying, "Well, we'll pull out too," and you've got a total collapse of governance in a way you weren't expecting. So that's that's a dramatic new pressure that people are under. We've now got this question, though. I think is really important. If we want to focus on the future, what do we do with all of the pain from the past? And I thought, in a way, the way in which Azim Rafiq was challenged about his anti-Semitic comments, had to own them, had to respond to them, actually gives him a model which I, I sort of sense he's saying when we, yeah, everyone's interested in the who said what to who and what can we pin on individuals because we find it so hard to talk about institutions and so easy to talk about individuals. And what we want to do is make it possible for people and institutions and cultures to change. So I think we've got to find a way of hearing the experiences that people have had, doing something with them, recording them and working out how to you know, forgive move on, make people part of the solution. At the moment, we haven't offered, I think, you know, the members of Yorkshire County Cricket Club the role we want them to play in being part of the future. We're just saying to them, you should have been a bit more alert over the last 10, 15, 20 years. I'll come to you in a minute, James. I just want to ask Halima a quick question. You're listening to this. Mm -hmm. You're a diversity inclusion expert. Why is it so difficult for people to... Uh, put the head above the parapet until until there's a crunch moment. I think as James mentioned something when when you were talking and that that really hit me in in answering that Barney's when you talked about actually when we do come forward or when people of colour do come forward and talk about some of the discrimination that they're facing sometimes they won't come forward out of fear out of fear that actually this will jeopardise my chances whether it's as an athlete but I'm talking maybe from an administration level you're working at a certain level in sport and you think if I want to climb up this career ladder I want to become a director I want to become a head of department 
But if I start to talk about some of the challenges that there are in this current organization and the culture and the way that it's run, you already feel that you have imposter syndrome. Then you start speaking and talking differently and you just think it's easy to remove that from an organizational point of view than actually listen to that. And, and this is the reason why you don't see many people in the hierarchies of sport. And for me, there has to be a cultural change. There has to be leadership, which is more visible. And we'll use Yorkshire as the example. Azim Rafiq came out and he talked about the head coach and he talked about the CEO. To this day, not that I'm aware of, have anything come out where they've acknowledged Azim's comments or even apologised for the way that they've handled it? They just seem to have vanished into the distance. And then you had Lord Patel come in, a person of colour, apologise to another person of colour. And, and for me, in this whole, what's happened with Yorkshire is the one thing that I would probably disagree with Lord Patel on, in that he shouldn't have apologised for something that he didn't do. Or And I know he's representing the organisation now, but you acknowledge and you take that forward. But if people don't look at it from their own personal, and for me, this comes back to people have to acknowledge that they are biased, that there is racism that exists. And only then, especially from a leadership point of view, can you move forwards. Thank you. Uh, James, you wanted to come in and I cut you off. Yeah, I was just going to um, respond to something that Sundar said. I think, you know, the term cancelled culture, we've seen, I think people say, have said things in the past. People have said things when they're teenagers. People have said, you know, some hor hor horrific things. But I think in, in the greater scheme of things, we need to allow people to be different. And I think if you cancel people because of something they've said that is racist and abhorrent and whatever else, yes, of course, they need to be accountable and they need to take responsibility for things that they've said. But I think if you just cancel them completely, you don't give anybody the chance to jump over the fence. I always think of, I don't know what the percent, these percentages are right or wrong, but so there's 90% of the world that is not racist and 10% that is. But if you cancel everybody on the on the 10% side of the fence and don't give them the chance to actually learn and be different and jump over the fence, in 20 years' time, you're going to have exactly the same percentages. So you need to have the ability, to, I think, and I don't, I, I'm not clever enough to actually know how, how to do this, but you need to obviously take responsibility and be accountable if you've done something um, racist. But you need to have some way where you can actually help that person or, you know, encourage that person to jump that fence and get onto the other side so that 90% goes up. I'm going to uh, sort of take some questions from um, uh, some of our listeners, uh, some of our audience panel, um, and I want to broaden the debate out. Um, so uh, Lee Pinkerton, um, and who's with the Cream Project, and Farial Iqbal um, sort of are asking that football racism has existed for so long why is it that we're only just now hearing about cricket? Uh, Sundar? Um, I, think, I think the challenges are, are different in football and, and cricket. I think it's interesting that cricket never had a campaign like Kick It Out in football to challenge racism. But I think part of the story here is that it was the kind of culture, the things that weren't said, you know, the nicknames. It wasn't, it wasn't as overt most of the time as the sort of overt racism that, you know, the West Brom players faced in the 70s and 80s. So it was a different, different kind of issue. But it was also cricket is the sport with enormous minority participation and then the segregation of that participation. Whereas I think football's in a different place. I think the um the Asian community is still a bit distant from from the football institutions there's still work to do on, on because there aren't enough asian players in the game 
yeah and that you know it's if you if your if your parents family didn't play don't know the kind of link so there's been a lot of stereotyping i think of asians why it's not going to happen and it still needs to happen so every sport every sport has a different has a different challenge i think i think in cricket it's clear that there's enormous participation in the amateur game but much too segregated uh, are much too separate and therefore no real pathways into the professional game. But all other sports don't even have the diversity that cricket has had. And so most other sports, except for maybe athletics and boxing, you know, have got some diversity. Mostly they're not even at the starting line, I would say. And people are saying the door's open. If people don't come, how do we know the problems with us, not with them? We don't know why there's nobody here, but we're perfectly inclusive. I think most sports haven't really started on the journey that football and cricket in different ways have been challenged to to, to respond to. James, you're, you're a sports journalist. Um, do you agree with Sundar that, that what's going on is that there is this buy-in in cricket, but not elsewhere? Um, I think there's buy-in in cricket because cricket has been forced to buy in um, because, because they've been, you know, pushed into a corner i think cricket is very was very happy with wearing t-shirts and having slogans in match day programs and stuff like that and, and thinking that was enough to you know that was anti-racism we're, we're fully inclusive look at the cricket landscape there's people of all colors play cricket you know you, we, we travel around the world and there's all, all of these different cultures involved so therefore how can we be racist and um, the majority of people that are making the decisions in cricket having said that are white people the people that look like me um, he was sitting around board tables making um, probably making very well-intentioned decisions, but they're making well-intentioned decisions from their own background and from the, from their own perspective and not really going out there and considering how, how that affects other people. I mean, I, there's the 12-point plan that the ECB have brought in off the back of the Azim stuff. They've got this 12-point plan about how they're going to develop cricket and make it more inclusive going forward. I think the key thing with that is to actually go out to cultures, to different cultures, and actually make them own that plan. You know, actually, a load of people at Lords saying, right, we're having this 12-point plan. This is the way we're going to move forward. This is where we're going to be more inclusive. That's good, and it's a good starting point. But you need to involve everybody in that. Because if you end up being just going to a, a cricket club in Bradford and saying, right, this is the 12-point plan. This is how it's going to work. That's just a white guy telling... Um, other people how, how how this is going to operate isn't it you need to make people actually own the sport and own the changes in the sport otherwise it's going to be something that's dictated to to people and that that isn't a very healthy way forward but I, I, I think Azim and, and what we've got now has given Yorkshire a golden cricket a golden ticket not just Yorkshire but the whole sport actually absolutely sport. And, and probably why further afield because you, you have the chance now, because there's a reason to, because it's got as far as it has done and it's blown up as big as it has. You've got the chance to actually draw a line in the sand and have that watershed moment where you can be different and you have an excuse almost as a committee or a board or, or whatever to actually make these changes off the back of what Azim's given you. And basically take everything back to, to square one and be honest and be truly open and say, right, you know, we've made mistakes in the past. This hasn't been ideal. We're going to involve everybody. We're going to talk to people. We're going to actually you know, join hands around the county. I mean, Yorkshire's, Yorkshire, the thing about um, Yorkshire is it actually represents everybody in the county, doesn't it? And Yorkshire is such a massive county, which is, uh, mm. you know, wonderful scenery, wonderful people, but wonderful people of all kinds of different backgrounds. And I don't think at the moment or in the past, the club has properly represented all of those people. I know from being at the club and working on the management team ahead of internationals where, you know, people described 
the Asian population is, of Bradford as being a revenue stream or they were t potential ticket buyers. They weren't ever really people. And I think pe you know, the club needs to view people as people, not as potential sales. And that's a big difference. It's a, you know, it's only a, probably a slight change, but you know, actually talking to people, actually, what do you want to see? How, you know, what, where do you want to see the club going? Is this your club? Why is it not your club? Actually, really properly talking to people from different communities and involving them and making them feel like it is their club. I mean, the term club is kind of everybody in it together kind of thing. At the moment, I think a lot of county clubs aren't that. It's about humanising. Um, Halima, Dr Manish Tile, MBE from the Royal Navy, says, good afternoon, I put it to the panel that the only difference between Yorkshire County Cricket Club, both in the racism itself and the handling of it, and any other major UK institution, is that they got caught. And I just wonder whether you agree with that. And he asks, what are the key lessons for other organisations and their people? Well, yes, they obviously got is caught. Is it because they got caught? Um, but I don't think it's just about the fact that they got caught. I think it's about it's the way they handled it as well. There wasn't an acceptance from the club that they were racist. You had the ex-chairman, I think it was the day after he resigned, came on, um, I don't know if it was a radio interview or on TV, and openly still said, I don't believe anybody at Yorkshire is racist. So for me, it very much goes back to people have to own their own levels of bias. And if some of that bias leads to racism, to say that, well, you are racist, but you have to be able to accept that first. So I think, yes, they got caught, but there was also no acknowledgement from being caught. And we've talked about this previously here, you know, in the way that they handled it. It wasn't just about the racism. It became this handling more than the actual racism itself. And I think, you know, the lessons for other organisations to learn is, you know, James, you talked about it a little bit before, is shared ownership, it's co-producing. So the ECB have developed a 12-point plan. They've got four main ambitions that they want to achieve from that. But actually, how much are they working with the counties and the clubs to say, how do we do this? Because we're not just going to dictate to you how this needs to be delivered and by when. So your argument is it's top-down and what it really needs is a community engagement. Yeah, because I think if you want communities, and if we use Yorkshire as the example, if we want Yorkshire to feel like cricket is for them and that club, they, they are a part of that club, it has to be a shared whether it's a document, whether it's an intervention, it needs to be co-produced, which then leads to shared ownership. I know that if I'm in involved in something from the onset to make a change and to meet that bigger goal and vision of being more inclusive, I'm sat on that table from the start of that conversation. They haven't come to me after producing the document with an action plan and a timeline and then saying, we need to do this. Can you do that bit of it? Because the first thing I'll turn around and say, no, no. Because they go, you didn't ask. You you haven't understood my world. You haven't understood my world, my culture, my environment, but you want me to do this for you. So I think there needs to be more conversations. And yes, them conversations will be very uncomfortable to start off with, but we will eventually lead to a comfortable position where people will start to feel like I am a part of this club. So therefore, the change has to happen from all of us. And it's not, yes, there's a responsibility around governance for the clubs and the administrators. But actually, everyone owns Yorkshire Cricket Club. You know, I'm from Bradford. I'm a Yorkshire woman. I want to be able to go to that club and say, I'm proud to come to this club. It is a part of me. It's part of the history that I'm involved in. So I think there's that one side of shared, sorry, co-production with your communities and then shared leadership and ownership from that. But the other thing I'd probably suggest is in order to get to that point and for you to be able to understand communities and people a bit better is, you know, reverse mentoring if you don't know of a 
particular community and culture and some of the challenges that they might have, go and find out, talk to them. I do that. You know, I'm no expert in all the protected characteristics and all the equality laws, but I know that if I don't know something, I will go and find somebody who's got a lived experience in that. And I will go to the effort of trying to find out what is it that I can be doing in my everyday work to ensure that I'm creating more inclusive environments. And it's not just me sat behind a desk thinking I know what the best thing to do is. I think there's a big lesson for every institution in sport and beyond sport, which is that all institutions are going to have to get more confident talking about race, talking about difference and so on. There's no institution in this country that is fully confident about that. And you only get that confidence if you've got those relationships. So if you're famous, if you're iconic, then you might be more likely to get caught in the spotlight if things go wrong and less able to brush it away. But you look at the census results that we're going to get. This is growing diversity in our country. You're going to have to get more confident about it. If those relationships are very distant, if that feels a very anxious thing to embark on, then you've got to work hard at building better relationships in the way that Halima said. But this idea about shared ownership, James is absolutely right that you need the shared ownership of the plan with the communities. I think there's been too much diversity as outreach, diversity for minorities. Let's have a conversation with the minorities about diversity and then have the usual conversation with everybody else about everybody, everything else. And that isn't shared ownership. So it's as important to have the shared ownership of the majority community, of the membership, of the plans, of the conversation and so on. And that's where I think, you know, it's a really interesting challenge for somebody like Lord Patel, I think has done well as a leader in the tone that he struck. People will say, you know, the club should, you know, connect across communities, make this better. He should turn to the members, I think, and say, you know, it's your job to help us reach out build these bridges you've got to play a part in this otherwise people are sort of sitting there with their arms folded a bit saying you know we've, we've got to be seen to do something about this because of that fuss but we're looking forward to it going away they've got to be asked to step up I had a very positive experience barney um uh, my next door neighbor is a charlton fan um as it happens here in kent and um charlton are in league one at the moment and they get crowds of 14 or fifteen thousand in a stadium that holds twenty-seven thousand. so all of the season ticket holders were given uh, three free tickets for a match and said, well, you know, let's see if we can fill the stadium. And so, um, you know, my nine-year-old got to go to her first football match having, uh, you know, filled in the Euro 2020 World chart because he said, look, we're trying to fill the stadium. Do your children want to go? And I think that's something you could put to the members of Yorkshire. Can you bring people into this ground next season who are younger, um, who are women, who are from different communities and different backgrounds, you know, some of the members of the Yorkshire Club don't have those relationships. Some of them do. That shouldn't just be for the club to do. I think it should be for the whole community to actually try to do that bridging. What I will say is that there's three entities to Yorkshire County Cricket Club. You've got the Cricket Club, the board and the foundation. And I know over the last couple of years, the board and the foundation have been working very hard where they have offered these opportunities. Some last two communities, especially during the 100, where they've given free tickets away to come in, enjoy kind of the perks of the club, just that whole club environment. Because I think one thing that does for younger generation is it's an aspiration. It inspires them to then want to be able to say, I am a part of this club and maybe I can get into the setup, whether it's as a player, whether it's as a coach or an administrator. So I think in everything that we're talking about, there are things that are happening, unfortunately, because of the Azim Rafiq thing. Well, I say unfortunately, it's good that it's come out. Some of that stuff is being kind of swept out of the way of what, what the clubs have been doing as well, which has been quite positive as well.
Sports Social Podcast Network. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.